I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Transatlantic Tech Talks, a mini-series on the Undercurrents podcast feed. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode three of Transatlantic Tech Talks, the mini-series which explores all aspects of transatlantic cooperation in the area of digital regulation and governance. It's great to have you with us. If you haven't already listened to the first two episodes, I would strongly recommend that you do before you listen to this one, just because there is quite a lot of groundwork that is laid, particularly in episode one, which means that this discussion kind of moves quite fast through some of the key issues on the digital trade agenda. This is our last mini-series for 2021. As you'll know, sometimes we partner with the research programmes at Chatham House to deliver more in-depth, three-part stories around a particular policy theme that we think demands attention. You can go back through our feed and you can see mini-series that we've done on South Korea, we've done on peace building. Further back, we've looked at issues such as the future of design thinking, which was really, really fascinating. But this today is a collaboration between the Digital Society Initiative at Chatham House, the International Security Programme, the International Law Programme, and the US and America's Programme. It's part of a collaborative project which has been supported by Microsoft. So, what are we talking about? Transatlantic Tech Talks is a three-part mini-series which explores the state of international cooperation on digital governance between the United States, the UK and Europe. As technical innovation accelerates and new digital tools and business models arise, governments are working to develop a framework of regulations to safeguard the rights and interests of their citizens. Not all stakeholders agree, however, on the best way to achieve this. While some advocate a digital cooperation approach based on transparency and data sharing, others are more concerned with maintaining different interpretations of digital sovereignty. In this, the third and final episode, we're looking at the key geopolitical diplomatic debates around the issue of digital trade. I'm joined again by my colleague Marianne Schneider-Petzinger, who was part of the panel on episode one, a senior research fellow in the US and America's program at Chatham House and one of our experts on international trade. She's joined as well by Susan Aronson, the director of the Digital Trade and Data Governance Hub at George Washington University, and by Ewan McMillan, the head of digital trade negotiations at the UK's Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. And really what we get into in this discussion is the economic aspects of this debate. Obviously, there are many different understandings of what digital trade means. And and don't worry, I asked Marianne that first off, (laughs) just so that we get clear on that. But thinking about the ways in which companies can be empowered to trade across borders in this area, in this particular sector, thinking about the kind of issues that come up in trade negotiations between countries when thinking about the digital sector, and also the sort of related issues, I guess, around the rights of of citizens and consumers and how you ensure that those are protected when you're no longer speaking in your own jurisdiction. It's really fascinating conversation and and particularly I think one of my favourite aspects was the insight that we got from Ewan and Susan into what it's actually like 
to be part of these negotiations and what sort of stresses and priorities governments bring to bear in this particular discussion. I hope you enjoy listening. All right, so I'm back and I'm joined by Ewan McMillan, Susan Aronson and Marianne Petzinger to talk about transatlantic digital cooperation, specifically in the realm of digital trade this week. Thanks all of you for joining me. And I'd like to come to Marianne first, if I may, and just do the kind of basic think tanker question of seeing whether you could just give us a definition, if you will, big question of digital trade. When we say digital trade, what do we mean? Thanks, Ben, and great to be with you again. Obviously, that's a very good point to start a discussion because really there isn't a single or globally adopted definition of digital trade, and that poses its own set of challenges. The OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, does say that there is a growing consensus that digital trade encompasses digitally enabled transactions of trade and goods and services that can either be digitally or physically delivered. But again, that's quite vague. And oftentimes the notion of digital trade is also confluted with the principle of e-commerce. And so it's not the same. Um, I think e-commerce is much, much more narrow. But again, the definitional question, obviously a key one to get right, because it does then have implications for being able to measure what we're actually talking about when we're looking at digital trade. And because there is this lack of definition, it's quite challenging to measure the size and the scope of digital trades. And again, that somehow makes digital trade perhaps a moving target. It's challenging to then get international cooperation and to actually analyze also the impact of the potential policies that we're talking about. So yes, um, a good starting point and perhaps one that already signals that's quite a complex issue to look at. And there's also many, many different problems that are related to digital trade, which adds further complexity. Absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you so much for that. We will be working within that huge broad sort of framework in the rest of this conversation. And uh, (laughs) I hope the listeners bear with us on that. i just wonder then maybe it will help us to think through some of the reasons why regulation of digital trade and and international agreements on digital trade are so important and Susan I wonder if if maybe you could tell us something about this what sort of issues are emerging as things that need to be regulated within the digital trade space so digital trade brings forth a lot of issues of domestic regulation such as competition policy, personal data protection, consumer protection and consumer welfare. But it also brings up questions of the business model that many, but not all, online firms utilize, which is they collect an awful lot of personal data, which they then group and collectively use and sell. And so that raises questions of consumer welfare beyond protecting people from spam. It raises questions of business practices and surveillance capitalism. And right now, no nation actually bans the business model, but they do ban certain practices related to the use of algorithms. Ewan, 
I wonder then, obviously, Susan's given us that perspective. And I think, obviously, there's a lot to say on the kind of domestic policies of respective countries insofar as, as regulating this space. But could you give us a sense of what the state of international discussions are around digital trade? How much has been agreed between countries and, and where? What frameworks are we dealing with already that exist? Well, thanks, Ben, and thanks for having me. I think that's a really interesting question. I think the first thing to say is that we have the the General Agreement on Trade and Services as part of the World Trade Organization agreed in 1994. That was before Facebook, Google, Amazon were twinkles in anyone's eye, really. And since then, we've seen an exponential growth in data so that data flows now are more valuable than goods flows or finance flows, according to McKinsey. So as Susan's mentioned, a lot of the business models, a lot of the development of technology that's occurred in that period has occurred after the laws uh, were set for international trade. Now, that doesn't mean that they are completely irrelevant, not at all. A lot of the issues are to do with competition. A lot of the issues are to do with services and investment more generally. And so there are quite a lot of laws that can be relied on. But there is, in many cases, a degree of ambiguity as to how much those laws apply to the current problems. And in some cases, there are just clear gaps. So that's why the world has embarked on, well, firstly, at the WTO, the e-commerce negotiations, which is a plurilateral negotiation under a subset of WTO members who are discussing all of these issues, just as Susan has outlined. But that's obviously a long-term process. It's very difficult to get even a plurilateral agreement at the WTO, given the range of different members. So countries, including the UK, have embarked on including digital trade chapters in free trade agreements. And there are a growing number of those chapters around the world. And also now we have standalone digital economy agreements. Singapore, Australia, New Zealand have led the way, but, but we in the UK, we are negotiating now with Singapore one of those agreements. Beyond that, of course, there's the kind of softer cooperation that you can have, such at the G7 level, where the UK had the presidency this year with the G7, and we agreed a set of digital trade principles with other G7 members. Now, those are principles agreed between countries. They're not legally enforceable treaty text, but they set a direction of travel. But there's still a lot more work to be done. Ultimately, updating those 1994 multilateral laws would be the best, first best solution. But in the interim, before we get there, we have to continue working on these bilateral accords. Could you tell us a bit more about how the UK government's been approaching this? What's been prioritised within your department? The first thing to say is I'm in charge of a team that deal with the trade negotiations, digital trade negotiations alongside the Department for International Trade. So we've been working an awful lot on that in our negotiations with the EU for the Trade and Cooperation Agreement post the UK's exit from the European Union as well as negotiations with Japan, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, the EEAFTA countries and at the WTO. I was enjoying beginning the discussions with the US trade representatives before the change in administration in the US has led to a pause in those talks, looking forward to them resuming. But that, that's been where we've been focused. But beyond that, of course, as, as has already been mentioned, there's a lot of domestic issues and that's part of the problem. So we in the UK, in, in my department, the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, we are consulting on our data protection regime. We uh, have a new bill going through Parliament uh, in early stages on online harms, online safety. And uh, we have a new bill on digital competition. So we're working a lot on these domestic regulations, as we know our other countries around the world. But a lot of these domestic regulations have an international effect. 
And that's where the conundrum comes in, because we'd ideally liked to be able to agree those internationally to avoid non-tariff barriers, to avoid coordination failures, to avoid regulatory divergence. But it's pretty hard to have a legally binding international treaty that commits countries to do something that they haven't yet thought through domestically. Mm. So we're in this kind of a feeling our way domestically and trying to make sure we talk enough to make sure that we don't create these problems inadvertently with other countries internationally. So the UK, probably more than any other nation right now, is negotiating all these bilaterals. What do you do to coordinate them among agencies in the UK and thinking about bilaterally, you know, what you have agreed to within all these trade agreements? The reason I ask you that question is because the UK is so torn, I think, between Let's take personal data protection as an example between the EU model. I think Reuters reported that the U.S. was pressuring the U.K. to weaken its approach to personal data protection. So how do you reconcile what national norms are versus international norms? It's a good question. I think, as with any government negotiating on trade, I've heard it said that uh, 80% of the negotiations happen internally first before you go and negotiate with your international partners. We have to get our positions correct. And we do a lot of that. We do a lot of what we call cross-Whitehall working. So working right across government with different departments, different parts of uh, government departments to come up with a collectively cabinet-agreed mandate for those negotiations that come to a position on a lot of these positions. And the trade-offs that we are talking about apply right across the board. So, look, if you really wanted to make sure that everyone was 100% safe online, you shut down the internet, you don't have an internet. You know, you can go to those extremes. There's always a trade-off between some of the consumer angles, consumer protection angles, and the commercial angles. And different countries will take different choices on that. And that's part of the conundrum, because as different countries take different choices, that leads to potential trade barriers which is why we have to try and have those international discussions, not only just to have laws that confine how people behave, but also to try and develop, co-develop our regulations so that we avoid these barriers from emerging. I think we're really at the heart of it talking about, you know, what does the digital trade regime actually cover? It's a range of questions. Again, it's domestic regulation, it's international regulation, it's to what extent existing regulation is fit for purpose, to what extent we need new regulation, and ultimately also, you know, what institutions at the national and international level are key to kind of come up with some of those solutions. And I think a related question, particularly at this interlinkage between, you know, the data flows and um, digital trade is also the question to what extent trade agreements actually have a role in all of that and to what extent there is limits. And I think we're all in agreement that cross-border data flows are really closely linked to digital trade and that they are a key issue in trade negotiations. But it's not quite clear that there is a very strong rationale for actually covering data flows primarily in trade agreements. Yes, data flows facilitate trade in goods and services and data policies ultimately also have an impact on trade flows. But there's other forms that get to the heart of many of those issues that we've talked about, whether it's consumer protection, for example, whether it's cyber policy. So I think trade agreements are quite good at providing leverage for work that's happening in other policy forums and to ultimately, you know, create greater coherence and better implementation. But the key question is ultimately, again, to what extent digital trade agreements are the best form for all of these or whether we are moving 
to a new form where we're not just talking about digital trade agreements, but really the rise of digital economy agreements and digital economy partnerships. That is such a good point. And I guess the only problem with it, if you look at the current models, right, the DEPA and the DEA, which have a lot of similarities, they don't really fully address all the digital economy issues. So, you know, they sort of, if you will, riff on the trade agreement model. But, you know, I don't think we're really thinking comprehensively enough about it or maybe even radically enough. So your point about this, you know, coming up with a new model is such a good one. But I think we're just in the beginning stages of that. Do you agree? I think it's a a really interesting question. And I'd like to pick up on the point about data in particular, because so trade agreements well, modern trade agreements that have a digital chapter normally have three provisions on data. One is on data flows, one is on data localization, and the other is on personal information protection. What the first of those two do is stop arbitrary protectionism with respect to data flows. What the third of those does is explain about how countries should have a system for personal information protection and that it's legitimate for governments to block data flows if the other country doesn't have sufficient personal information protection. I think it's right that the assessment of whether a country has adequate personal information protection systems sits outside of a trade agreement. Often those things are dynamic, they need to happen over time. So it's not the right vehicle for having that adequacy assessment there. And which is why we keep that very separate from the digital trade law that's enshrined in the the treaty chapters of, of trade agreements. But that's not to downgrade what the flows and localization provisions do on data. They stop blocking, they stop arbitrary protectionism. Oftentimes when we're talking about data, everyone jumps straight to personal data. But in reality, so much data flow is business to business. I heard it said at a conference the other day that a transatlantic flight generates a terabyte of data that's non-personal data. So you can imagine how much data is going around the world that isn't really talked about in data discussions because it's not as incendiary a topic from a, a personal data point of view. And what century agreement stops countries from blocking that? And that is, I think, a really valuable element of trade agreements. Yeah, but let me push you a little harder, if I may, on that. So if I heard you correctly, you're saying, okay, we have three priorities, if you will. So we want to encourage data flows. We want to prevent data localization. And, you know, we we view personal data protection as something different. Yet at the same time, we also realize that we're not really addressing all types of data and issues of control of that data. Can I reframe that and say, Governments are actively trying to create comparative advantage in various types of data, the scale of data, the scope of data, so the types of data. And by that, I mean China, though you could probably argue they're also blowing up their digital economy. India, I would say the United States, even the UK, you had Mr. Moore recently said that we have all these data traps because data is a national security asset. And so it it worries me that we're really not thinking about, do we need a new approach to govern this, given the import of data to economic growth? And that we do see governments doing things other than data localization to maintain control over, if you will, the data that their society creates. 
And so I worry that we're not thinking broadly enough and creatively enough about it to get at, as you said, you know, IoT data. One thing I have to say that I think is really pathbreaking is like the EU, at least, you know, whatever you think about the DMA and the DSA, they're saying data sharing is really important. So we need to encourage entities to to reuse data and to think about the utility of data. What I don't see nations doing is saying we need to be transparent about who controls data and why that matters for the success of our economy. And it's funny to me that that has not come up at all for the Democracy Summit, because if data is at times a national security asset, you know, we see how data can undermine democracies. I think, Susan, you have a really good point there, because I think one of the risks is that in both the international but also bilateral regional approaches to regulating the cross-border data flows, we are perhaps too narrowly focused on specific issues or aspects, whether that's, again, privacy or limited geographically. And I think there is very much also a developed versus developing country perspective here that we haven't really quite explored yet, where there has been quite significant progress in Asia, to some extent also in Latin America, but very limited progress in Africa only. I think there's not a single African country that has entered into any trade agreement that um, contains commitments related to data flow. So I think there's also that dimension. And perhaps more broadly speaking, this question also very much at the multilateral level. So the plurilateral negotiations with regards to the e-commerce negotiations at the WTO, to what extent there is a trade-off between scope and including a wide range of countries. So if you do have only a narrow agreement that's very limited in scope and in provisions covering spam, for example, or e-commerce facilitation, you do attract a great number of participants. And you know, at the same time, you're leaving out very contentious issues around data flows, for example. So perhaps also quite limited in ultimately the economic implications of any such agreement. But on the other hand, if you're aiming for very ambitious, high standards and broad agreement that really tackles some of those key issues around privacy, for example, the risk is that there you deter participation from key countries that are not willing or not able to commit to certain obligations. So that really, I think, is also a key challenge. I'd be really curious to hear where you think um, you know, that balance is best to be found. So it's an interesting challenge. And I think um, there is a real risk of mercantilism creeping into the data domain and the logic that applied in the past to tariffs being applied to data. So in effect, that let's restrict the size of the pie so that we get a bigger share of it. And if all countries do that, you end up with a much smaller pie. You end up in a, a prisoner's dilemma. And I think that's that's what, you know, that's what the WTO was set up to prevent. And it's done that really well with respect to tariffs. With data, as I said, you know, those rules were established in 94 and uh, they, they haven't really kept pace. So those are risks that are real and that's why we need to address them. One of the, I think, the really good things that the WTO has done in this space is the moratorium on, on customs duties on electronic transmissions, which is a way, if it were to be applied, of, in effect, taxing the internet. So a country could ask an internet service provider to pay it uh, a fee for every bit that gets processed through its systems. That would be a way of raising revenue. And you can understand why some countries want to go down that route to raise revenue. But what it does is lead to, in effect, a trade war with data at, at its core. 
And that's something that I think we need to be very guarded against letting that creep in. There is a risk that the customs moratorium won't be renewed, particularly now that, unfortunately, the World Trade Organization ministerial conference has been postponed. But there are risks broader than just customs, as you're noting, Susan, it's, it's about control over data. The G7 digital trade principles that, as I mentioned, they're not, they're not the same as international treaties, legally binding, but they do point a direction of travel for major economies. And the, the section on data free flow with trust is pretty clear that we should address unjustified obstacles to cross-border trade while continuing to address privacy, data protection, protection of intellectual property rights and security. Now, you could try and squeeze quite a lot into those sort of exceptions, but it's still quite a limited range of exceptions that we as the G7 have agreed we should be following. And there's also a, a push for government data to be made open, to be made accessible in a machine-readable format so that others can have access to that data for the purposes of designing apps, etc. So I think the signal is a good direction of travel. It's not cast iron. It doesn't absolutely definitively prevent a return to mercantilism, but it's a start. I truly laud the UK for those principles. But as a scholar, sort of my job is to ask you questions about the framing, if you will. And I think Ultimately, like I'm trying very hard to understand, uh, I, I don't use a game theoretic model, but I do think data is something different. And you can't use traditional models of governance to govern data because the market for data is opaque. That's thing one, right? We're learning some things about price, but we know very little about supply. We don't know what the major firms, what kind of data they hold and new products and services they're trying to create. So you have a problem there. You have a problem with network effects. We won't get into that. Then you have the threat to democracy, which I think, look, uh, there's been other products that have threatened democracy, but not at this scale. And yes, the GATT has long dealed with questions of trade and democracy, and it was supposed to be a membership of only democracies. And I think the UK played a major role in, in convincing the United States just wanted to kick Czechoslovakia out because of the coup. The, so there's a history here of dealing with these problems. Mm -hmm. But that said, I do think the economics of data and what data is doing to the world, I think is tearing the world apart. And I think we have to think totally differently and more coherently. So let's just look at the transatlantic to the TTC which partials it in silos of platform governance and disinformation. And I would argue that we need to think differently about this process because if we don't, my, my big fear, I have an op-ed coming out about this tomorrow, is that other nations are going to start to blame the United States, as perhaps they should, for, for not regulating what, it, what data is doing to the world. You know, because we have the business models and we have huge control over much of the world's data through various mechanisms. So, you know, I don't like to use the term data sovereignty because I think who is sovereign over data? But that model, you know, according to our mapping, almost every nation from Canada to India to South Africa and even the UK to some extent is buying into this notion of. Government should be sovereign over data. Thanks so much for that, Susan. Marianne, Susan just mentioned there the United States, which 
I think in a way has kind of almost been peripheral to this conversation so far. But as she mentioned, it is so central to <laughs> all of these questions, not least because of just the structural size of the digital economy in the US. But could you just for our for the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us a bit about how the US government broadly defined, I guess, is approaching this issue. We've heard a bit about the UK and the EU already, but where is the US on this? And and are they actually in a position to be having these huge holistic conversations that Susan's advocating for? Well, perhaps let me just kind of in very simplified terms, talk about the US approach to data flows and digital trade. And I think here it's quite key that the US is actually seeking commitments that other countries will allow data flows with the US and that they limit their measures that they can use to regulate data flows. So, for example, restricting the use of data localization policies. So I think that's one key aspect. The other one is also that the U.S. has been really a leading proponent of including cross-border data flows in the trade regime. So if you're looking at the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, ultimately the U.S. pulled out of it, but it was the first trade agreement that included binding rules on cross-border data flows and then other um, agreements that the U.S. is key to U.S. Um, MCA, so the renegotiated agreement between the United States, Mexico, and Canada, is also quite critical. So again, the U.S. has been quite at the forefront of those issues, but not necessarily in the kind of holistic and multidisciplinary approach that Susan is referring to. On the EU, again, there the approach that is typified is much more, you know, focusing on the protection of citizens' data as a fundamental right. And I think also the EU has been quite central to trying to find global answers to ultimately a global challenge. So very much in the multilateral kind of world. But at the same time, the EU has also been quite central with regards to negotiating bilateral agreements. So they're engaging with Chile, New Zealand, Australia, Indonesia. And then I think perhaps the most important part of that is, you know, how the EU, the UK and the US approach really compare to the Chinese model. And I think there the emphasis is very much under control of data by the government and China's vision of digital trade, which really is underpinned by data localization policies, by restrictions on cross-border data flow. And I think what we're also seeing is that China is trying to shape the digital trade agenda and the provisions beyond its national borders. And key here is that China is now trying to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPP, but also this Digital Economy Partnership, the DIPA, that we've mentioned before. So I think there's a lot of moving parts, but overall, I think it's quite important to keep in mind that there's actually more that unites the US, EU, and UK than divides them. That is not to say that there's no transatlantic tensions that need to be managed. They clearly are. And here again, the privacy shield is key, which was invalidated by the European Court of Justice in 2020. And it's a mechanism of transferring personal data between the EU and the US to comply with European data privacy laws, and both sides are working on finding a solution. They've been doing that for the last 18 months or so, are trying to wrap it up before the end of the year. It's quite unrealistic, but again, that is a work in progress. Positive steps are taken, and I think that helps to at least um, ensure that tensions that are remaining don't undermine the kind of broader picture, which really is that there is still a broader, similar precision on many issues, whether it's openness, whether it's transparency, and again, more that unites than that divides. Yeah, thank you for that. We're coming towards the end of this, but I just wanted to follow up there with you and and just see what your take on that is. Obviously, we've spoken about a lot of different obstacles or, or challenges that need to be addressed 
when we're talking about negotiations between these these countries and these actors. But do you agree with Marianne's assessment that there is there is a lot of fertile ground there for cooperation on a transatlantic level? And are you optimistic that in the coming years we're going to see more of that being rolled out? So thanks. I'm glad that you use the word optimistic. I mean, as as policy professionals and <laughs> and academics, uh, I count myself as kind of a kind of a both. You often end up focusing on problems, and that's right. But we we often forget the tremendous good that the internet has done for the world, the tremendous economic impact that data has had for the world, and the problems, particularly between us and the US, are relatively few and far between. We have a delegation from my department, uh, including our Secretary of State, out in the US this week, um, having a range of conversations uh, with a range of officials and politicians in the USA on all of these issues. And I think that's really, really healthy. Where there are risks is because we're all grappling with this, what's called the Colling Ridge dilemma of technology outpaces regulation. And once technology is out there, you start thinking about how are we going to regulate it? How are we going to deal with these problems? And if we are unable to deal with these problems internationally, there could be this reversion to more of a mercantilist protectionist approach. So we need to be really guarded against that. And um, a really interesting test case, particularly between the UK and the US right now, is the issue of Facebook and Giphy. So if anyone's been following this, the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK just ruled that it breaches competition rules for Facebook US to have acquired Giphy US and to do business over the internet in the UK. And the ball's kind of in Facebook's court now on if they're going to appeal on what grounds they would appeal or if they're going to concede that's correct, that the Competition Markets Authority of the UK has the power to tell them to divest part of their business. And I think that'll be a really interesting test case because if the UK Competition Markets Authority does not have the power to request these kinds of changes, then what do we do across the board when we get into more and more regulatory issues as we design a regulation? And I think that a lot of the world will be watching this test case because if the UK is doing it, lots of other countries will be considering this and the implications not just for competition law, but for online safety law, for all other kinds of aspects of digital regulation. So I think that's one to watch. Mm, yeah, thank you for that. Susan, I, I want to give the last word to you, if I may, and uh, thank you for all of your contributions so far and for raising so many of the questions that we've been talking about. But where do you stand reflecting on uh, Ewan's call for academics to find some optimism sometimes? <laughs> are there areas that, that you think actually there are the kind of green shoots of progress here? Or do you think, broadly speaking, we're, we're lagging and policymakers need to do a bit more of a fundamental rethink? I think Ewan made that point and I think that decision will hold. And I think that will signal greater cooperation among competition authorities. That's my gut. So I am optimistic, actually. But that is a different question from, does the regime meet the problem, right? And we are going to have to, given that many of these firms that support, transmit, control, innovate uh, using data are housed in, or, um, you know, they are international companies. They're bigger than many governments. Fundamentally, we have to come up with digital economy agreements that are global. And that's very difficult to do. But it is going to be the only way 
because the internet is a shared platform and we are dependent on it ever more since the pandemic. We have to find ways to think differently about what we're trying to do. So this isn't just about digital trade. Instead, it's about how do we find a digital economy that is sustainable and inclusive? And that means we have to find ways to include, um, as Marianne pointed out, developing countries that are very frightened by this and want to come up with their own set of domestic rules before they even think about negotiating internationally. And who fear, as with IPR, they are going to be, for the rest of history, paying rents to a few big companies uh, from a few countries. So we, we really need to think differently, but that's not how the real world works, unfortunately. <laughs> and I'm not naive about that, that I come across as like a silly-haired um, idealist um, who is impractical. But I, I'm thrilled to be able to participate in a discussion about this with such thoughtful people. No, thank you very much. And I echo that. I mean, it's been wonderful to to listen to. It's probably the the lightest touch interview I've ever done, I've ever <laughs> I've ever had to do. So thank you very much uh, for your contributions, all of you. Susan Aronson, Ewan McMillan and Marianne Petzinger. See you soon. Thank you. A pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode and indeed for the whole Transatlantic Tech Talks series. I really hope that you've enjoyed those. I'm really glad that we could bring these to you before the end of 2021. I think it's such a fascinating subject, which we've covered at different times in previous series of undercurrents. Um, But really to have it updated and to be able to bring together so many different experts is really fantastic. Thank you very much to my colleagues in the Digital Society Initiative, in the Corporate Relations team and and elsewhere across the house who have helped us to put this together, in particular Rebecca Dugard and Chris Lazenby. And if you want to find out more about the work that we do in this area, the best thing to do is to visit our website www.chathamhouse.org or to follow our International Security Department on Twitter at ChathamHouseISR. We'll be back very soon with a standard Undercurrents episode for you, but till then, thank you very much for joining me.